Some of you might be familiar with Bill Hybels, that name. He was the founder and former pastor of Willow Creek Church uh, in uh, kind of the outskirts of Chicago, Illinois. And he famously said this. He said, the local church is the hope of the world. Now, since then, Hybels has had an unceremonious exit from Willow Creek because of allegations of sexual misconduct. Uh, It's yet, I mean, we've talked about this a number of times, another example of a church leader whose focus on effectiveness trumped their pursuit of virtue in their life, right? When we exchange virtue for fame. Um, But I find myself often returning to his quote, that the local church is the hope of the world. The band Ren Collective uh, has sang a song with a similar sentiment Uh, using one of their verses of their song, Build Your Kingdom Here. They sing, fill us with the strength and love of Christ. We are your church and we are the hope on earth. Now, I had my share of dissonance with that expression. It, It seemed a little haughty to me to label the local church as the hope of the world. Surely it was Jesus, it was the power of the Holy Spirit who were the hope of the world. They were the ones that the active agents bringing redemption, bringing regeneration to this place. It seemed odd to me that this, you know, religious leaders like Bill Hybels, these influencers like Ren Collective were highlighting this broken institution, that it's the church suggesting that are the front lines of God's plan to bring redemption to the world. But the more that I thought about it, I think there was something that perhaps was spot on with that analysis of the church. God is the power. The Greek word for power is the same root that we get our word dynamite from, dunamis. God is that explosive force behind the work of the church. But in a strange series of events, instead of God, you know, we never see God using that expression, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. The scriptures show that God partners with flawed human beings to accomplish his purposes. He delights when we take interest in the family business. And although we may not be the most effective managers of that business, God patiently works through us, patiently waits with us to be his representatives in that calling. So the church as an institution is the, that, that body that possesses the good news of God the good news of his kingdom, and have been tasked with sharing that hope to the world. So this morning, we're, we're wrapping up a, a short series that we did, trying to help us redefine our understanding of the church. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at what is the church. We've looked at the characteristics of those who make up the community of the church. Last week, we examined some rhythms that are part of this community of faith. This morning, I want to help us grasp the mission of the church. Why, excuse me, what is the church here for? Why do we exist? What are we supposed to communicate to a watching world? And I've got three main themes that I want to assess this morning. So first I want us to look just a little bit through this theological lens, the timing of the church. Why do we meet on Sundays and what message does that communicate? Second, we'll look at the place of discipleship in the church. What is discipleship to prepare us for? And lastly, how do we take what we've learned and grown, and how do we unleash it upon the world? 
And my hope this morning is that we see that, that the part each of us has to play in the church. Right? The part that each of us has to play in the grand narrative that God is weaving together. We have all, each one of us, been tasked with being a herald for his kingdom in some way. So let's start by looking at the choice of when we meet for our gatherings. Now, the early church came out of the foundations of Judaism. Right? Jesus was Jewish. The first Christians were almost all Jewish. But right from the start, there was a break from the practice of the early church with the faith system that it grew out of. The Jewish Sabbath, the day of rest, was on Saturday. Still see vestiges of that and uh, think of some of the Western languages like Spanish where the word for Saturday is sabado. The first Christians, on the other hand, didn't continue to meet on Saturdays but started meeting on Sundays. Now I think there's a link between these two practices. The observance of the Sabbath is rooted in the Ten Commandments. There are two lists of the Ten Commandments that you can find in, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible. In Exodus 20, the Sabbath is linked with the rhythm of creation, right? Work for six days and rest for one, just like God did when he created the universe. But if you look at the list in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we're given a different rationale. The Hebrew people are to observe and honor the Sabbath because, as Deuteronomy 5.15 states, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Right? God is reminding his people that they were slaves in Egypt. And as slaves, they never got a day off of work. They were worked tirelessly. But then God redeemed them with his mighty works, breaking those chains of slavery, providing the law. Right? The Sabbath was a sign. We've talked a lot about signs. A symbol of their freedom from bondage. Jesus continues this link in Luke chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. So Jesus, he's, he's on the synagogue, he's teaching on the Sabbath, and he heals a woman. And the religious leaders there are angry. And they say, like, there's six days that you can do work, right? Not, don't do that today. Come back one of those other six days if you want to get experience that healing. But Jesus says in verse 16, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, now notice that language of slavery, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day, right? The Sabbath was a symbol of their freedom from bondage. Now, this is the background, but when Jesus Christ rose from the dead on Sunday morning, he took that symbol of freedom to a, a different level. On Sunday, when Jesus triumphed over the powers of sin and death, he ended the slavery of their oppression. Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of a new creation, a recreation, that there is victory in the resurrection. And so the first Christians chose to worship God on Sunday as a testament to that victory. When we meet on Sunday morning, we join with the chorus of saints who have gone before us, who come after us in the triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that through his resurrection, we are a freed people, that our bondage from sin, our bondage of death, no longer has a claim over our lives. 
This is good news for the world. When we meet, whether we know it or not, we join in that message of hope for the world. Just by meeting on a particular day, we demonstrate a better way, a way of hope for that world. Now, secondly, the church is meant to be a place of equipping. I shared this uh, a little bit last week uh, when we were looking at the rhythms of the church, that we, part of the purpose of church is to, to learn, to rehearse these certain practices, these certain patterns that we take with us when we leave. Right? We take with us to help us stay rooted and connected to God. But how does this transition, transformation take place? The biblical language calls this discipleship. Jesus tasked us, his disciples, in the Great Commission, it's in, in Matthew, uh, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, with doing more of this, right? Ta- we as disciples are to make more disciples. And there's, there's numerous, so many models of discipleship, and I'm sure each one has its own strengths and weaknesses. But I would suggest to you that discipleship is more about, more than just learning the, the quote-unquote right answers. Things like scripture memory are important. Learning good theology is important, but those things are not substitutes for communion with God and this call to carry his mission in the world. I mean, I, when, when I was in college, you know, discipleship was this, let's go through this little workbook together, right? Let's learn kind of the right things to say, the right understanding of God. Again, important, but it's easy to do all that kind of book knowledge and yet remain distant from God, right? What did Jesus say? That they honor me with their words, but their hearts are far from me. If you want to pull out your, your Bibles, uh, or the Bibles in the pew, uh, I, I've, got, I've got one passage. I just want to, us to look at a little bit um, further. It comes from Ephesians chapter 4. So we'll look at that in just a little bit more detail. I, I previewed this passage in our, our call to worship last week. So in this passage, Paul takes a quote from one of the Psalms, and he, he, he reapplies it in a new way. So Ephesians 4, and we'll just start, keep it open because I'm going to refer to it a couple times, but we're going to start with Ephesians 4, 7 through 8. Paul says this, Ephesians 4, 7 and 8, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men and women. Keep your eye there on verse 8, what I just read. Now, I'm going to read the psalm that Paul is citing from. This is Psalm 68, 18. You don't have to go there. Stay, stay on Ephesians 4, 8. The psalmist says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So this original psalm said that God received gifts among men. What's in view in that psalm is that God is a, it's this motif of God as a conquering king, scattering those who would stand against him and his kingdom, receiving tribute from his followers, receiving tribute from those he has subjugated. Right? The psalm is using a motif common in the ancient Near East to showcase God's might and the loyalty that his subjects owed to him. But when Paul takes this psalm, redistributing it to the New Testament age, 
that motif is turned on its head. Instead of God receiving tribute, in Ephesians, God is a conquering king who shares the spoils with his followers. As a result of this conquest, he doles out gifts to those who were part of his militia, if you will. Ephesians 4.11 goes on to describe what role those gifts take. Follow with me as I read. And it says, and he gave the apostles. He gave, right? This is the gift that he's giving. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, i.e. pastors, and teachers. The gifts that God bestows upon his people here in Paul, that Paul's highlighting, are the leaders of the church. Look at the next verse, Ephesians 4, 12 to 13. It gives us the purpose of why, why do these leaders exist? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what's in view here in Ephesians 4? God has won a decisive victory. He scattered his enemies and he shares the spoils of his victory with his people. And these, these gifts are leaders who have the expressed purpose of equipping the saints for ministry, of building up the body of Christ. So that begs the question, how do we define ministry? What is it that the leaders are equipping these folks for? Now, when I was in college, I was involved in a particular uh, parachurch ministry. It provided a lot of spiritual development for me. But I would argue that they had a really big blind spot when it came to their framework for ministry. They would have seen themselves as an equipping ministry, right? Giving, giving the, the students the, the tools to function in ministry. But if you were really serious about it, if you were really serious about ministry, you had basically three options. You could go to seminary and be a pastor. You could move overseas and be a missionary to an unreached part of the world. Or you could join, you know, their staff of of their parachurch ministry to train the next generation of college leaders. That was the scope of how they perceived and labeled ministry. If you wanted to do ministry, those were your options, basically. But that vision creates a dualism, right? That there's one category of things that are called sacred, things like being a pastor or a missionary, doing God's work. But then at the same time, there's this other category of all this other stuff, what's often labeled as secular, like being an engineer or being a politician. But we don't see that same kind of bifurcation, that same kind of division in the Bible. Many of you have heard me say it before, but I think it bears repeating that I believe that what God reveals to us through the scriptures is that all of life is ministry. You don't only have a call to full-time ministry if you move to uh, an unreached nation and and spread the love of Jesus there. But every vocation, every calling has the opportunity to be a life of full-time ministry for the Lord. You can be in ministry by cutting hair, teaching in the school system, doing soil testing, advocating as a social worker, working in retail, being a stay-at-home parent. Ministry goes well beyond just what we might think of as church work. 
So to that end, church ought to be a place that we're thinking about virtue, we're thinking about morality. Yes, absolutely. But it's also a place that we should be looking at the ways that God has equipped us to work. What is it that you are being equipped for? Let me just give you some, some examples of what that might look like. Prime the pump, if you will. You know, are you using your vocation as a hairstylist? Sure, to give some real you know, nice, nice cuts, but also a place where people feel comfortable expressing their lives, both the joys and the sorrows, the joys and the struggles. Are you teaching in a way that helps students find their God-given potential for the world? Soil testing can help isolate and identify behaviors that are helpful and or harmful to the world that God has entrusted to us. Social workers are advocates for the vulnerable and often voiceless. A sales associate at a retail store can treat the customer like a person and not a dollar sign, not a commodity. Maybe suggest goods that would actually be helpful for them and not just what makes the most commission or, you know, brings in the most income for the store. Any of you who are parents know that parenting is so difficult, but so much of what we treat or what we teach and how we treat our kids shapes the framework for God and faith. These are a fraction. I mean, you could keep going, listing of what engineers do, what nurses or doctors do. I mean, you could go on and on. There are so many ways that we can work towards God's kingdom, but the church ought to be a place that we receive glimpses into how we fit into that kingdom calling that God's provided for us. We are equipped for ministry. But the last step of the church, church's purpose is then to be unleashed or released to the world. One of the elements of the church that we uh, saw two weeks ago is that the church is not just to be reflective of society, but that it is a transforming agency. Right? I don't know if you remember that doodle that we had with the examples of, you know, the Republicans going to Republican churches and the Democrats going to Democrat churches. And I use that to describe, right, because the, 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 those were the, that was the negative side of it. The positive was that it was meant to be a diverse place where you have people from both sides of the aisle, right? Both sides of the socioeconomic gap, both sides of the age divide, worshiping together. And yes, it is about diversity, but it's also about a place where our challenges and conceptions, or excuse me, our conceptions can be challenged, that we can be encouraged to bring all things under submission to the Lord. Here's one of Sky's doodles that illustrates how this benefits the world. There we go. Inside, as a church, we gather together. We experience the transforming work of Jesus. But then Monday through Saturday, we're unleashed to the world pursuing God's kingdom in the places where we live, we work, we go to school, we play. What does it mean for us to pursue ministry outside the walls of the church? Colossians chapter 1, uh, specifically verses 15 through 20, is, is a really theologically rich testament to the power and majesty of Jesus. But the final verse describes the ultimate purpose of Christ's redemption. Verse 20 says, and through him, Christ, he is reconciling to himself all things, whether on heaven or, in, or whether on earth or in heaven. 
making peace by the blood of his cross, right? God's plan is to reconcile all things to himself. I know that's going to be hard to read, but I'll explain it, get the the picture. Because this is the break from what we often think about in a lot of our American churches. So it says at the top, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Then he retired to do full-time ministry, right? Again, this guy's trying to be a little little silly, a little tongue-in-cheek there. And then you have this big circle that says cosmos, which is all things, and this little soul in the cosmos that says soul, souls. And the arrow says what we think God's mission is about, what the Bible says God's mission is about. We often think that ministry is sharing the good news with others, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, to lead them to Jesus, and it is that, but it's so much more. That is a portion of the broader picture that I think God is calling us to, because we are invited by God to join in his restoring work of Jesus Christ to all of creation, right? God's mission to the world is not just the salvation of souls, of people, but God wants to redeem all things, right? As we say in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, The orientation of human history is pointing to that, a time when heaven meets earth, that what is true of heaven is also true here as well. A time when the glory of the Lord covers the land as the waters cover the sea. And we are invited to participate in that kingdom. But that's not just a future reality. Here's the last doodle I'll share from from Sky. The assumption so often is that we're waiting We're just waiting and waiting and waiting for that kingdom to come. So the assumption is you're here and that kingdom of God is far away. And there is a degree of patiently waiting. We haven't seen it in its fullness. But it is also true at the same time that the kingdom is here. Albeit it's not done yet, but it's here. Jesus inaugurated, he began, he established his kingdom when he died and rose again. One of the metaphors that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom of God as he says, it's like yeast in a lump of dough. Now, I resonate with this. Some of you know that every, uh, this, this picture, because every Sunday I go home from this place, because we have Sunday night is pizza night in the Ansel household. So every, every uh, week after church ends, I go home, and I mix together the ingredients for our weekly homemade pizza. I activate the yeast, and I add it to the flour, the sugar, the salt, and the water. Mix it all together. And immediately, nothing happens. At least nothing perceptible. The yeast is in that lump of dough, but you can't, you can't perceive it. But if you walked away from that lump of dough and you came back a few hours later, that dough has expanded. Although sometimes I've gotten some duds and it doesn't expand. But going with the metaphor, that yeast has expanded. The dough's expanded to that rim. It's almost bubbling bo- over the mixing bowl. Because the yeast has permeated the entire lump of dough going through its chemical reaction, creating carbon dioxide out of the sugars. This is precisely what Jesus said the kingdom is like. It's like yeast that slowly makes its way through the entirety of the dough. So too will the redemptive, restorative work of God make its way through the entirety of the cosmos. I mean, I guess that metaphor could be taken a bit too far, you know. The yeast is the Holy Spirit activating us as the sugar. We need to make sure we're not just producing a bunch of hot air there. (laughs) It's like a dad joke, I guess. I don't know. 
But the end result of this is that God's kingdom being fully manifested here, it all harkens back to the beginning, the beginning of the scriptures that we read. Because in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were tasked, what was their task? To subdue the earth and to fill it, right? To kind of tame it, to create culture is another way that you could say that, and to fill it with more image bearers of God. Now, we know from that narrative in the first chapters of Genesis that the garden had boundaries, because if it didn't have boundaries, then there wouldn't have been a way for Adam and Eve to have been placed outside of the garden. So there were boundaries to that garden, Had Adam and Eve never sinned, I believe that the goal would have been, as I said, to subdue the area of the garden, to fill it with new image bearers, but then to expand the boundaries of the garden, incrementally widening paradise, the Garden of Eden, right? The borders of where the glory of God existed until it filled the entirety of the world. So following the lead of of You know, think of Jesus Christ as like the second Adam. We can reclaim this task. We can use our gifts. We can use our vocations to partner with God to see his kingdom manifest more fully. But this isn't something that we do independently. We join in this work together as the community of the church. This is what I would suggest the church is for. Now, I know this morning there was was a wide berth of material. Our gatherings together have a purpose. We saw how our gathering on Sunday is a declaration of the victory that's been won on our behalf through Jesus Christ. Right? We looked at the equipping for ministry that comes through the gifts of God to his people. And we saw that this development, this growth, this discipleship is for the purpose of being unleashed as a catalyst of God's grace and his kingdom in the world. So I want to I leave us some, some things to think about, some reflection questions as we continue to process through these ideas. So the first is this. Have you considered your Sunday gatherings as a celebration of Christ's freedom, the freedom that Christ provides? How does that shape your approach to worship? Now, there are definitely times for, you know, uh, kind of a somber nature uh, of lament in our worship that is definitely a part of it. Um, but we're a resurrected, excuse me, resurrection people. How does the resurrection of Jesus triumphing over those those, uh, forces of sin and death kind of evoke in us uh, how we approach worship? Second of this, how do you see your vocation? Think about this. I tried to prime that pump, giving you some examples. I, I mean, I did the work for Craig. He works in retail, so he doesn't need to think too much about it. How do you see your vocation, whatever it is that you do, fitting in with or pointing to the kingdom of God here on earth? What, is, what does that look like for you? Because I would suggest there, there's just about, there might be a few that I can think of that don't necessarily point to reflect the kingdom of God, but for the most part, they all have the potential to do so. So think about what it is that you do and how you're kind of part of that puzzle or the tapestry that God is weaving. Lastly, one author said that we should consider ourselves as tour guides, pointing at the place, places where God is at work around us. He kind of said this in response to kind of the uh, uh, brokenness of Western colonialism, right? Like Western colonialism or the mission that fell under that in the, the uh, 
you know, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries often was like, we need to bring Jesus to this place. And he would say, no, 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 like Jesus is already present. Your goal is how do you point to the places that he's already present? And so think, think about that. Think of a few places where you see the kingdom of God breaking through in your spheres of influence. Join me in prayer. God, we come before you acknowledging the calling that you've placed upon us. Not just to be uh, spectators, not just to, you know, as I'm going to watch the Steelers game this afternoon, not just sit on the sidelines, but you invite us to join in the work that you're doing, to take the field. Lord, that could take so many different avenues, whether it be kind of quote-unquote ministry proper where we do the work of the church, but there's so many places where the, the ways in which the places you've called us to, our jobs, our work, our vocations, can be examples of seeking your kingdom, a kingdom of flourishing for all people, a kingdom of peace, of righteousness, of justice. Lord, a place where uh, <laughs> you are known more fully. Lord, even now, be bringing those ideas, those examples of what that could look like so that we could be activated to do your work that you call us to. Lord, we love you and we lift up your name, Jesus. Amen.